Amen. Good morning. My name is Mike Shera, and <laughs> I'm kidding. It's not. My name is Connor, and uh, I am one of the associate pastors here. Pastor Mike is taking a break from preaching, but I am really thankful to be able to be with you and bring God's word to you. So um, I'm actually going to pray again and just ask for God's blessing on his word, and then we are going to get going together. Pray with me. Lord, we are so thankful for this morning to be together. We're thankful for your word. And Lord, we don't just pray as a formality, but we pray because we need your help. And so we ask right now that as we look at Psalm 32 together, you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. And Lord, I pray especially for anyone whose heart is downcast, that you would comfort them with the truth of your word this morning. And Lord, we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 350 years ago, an unlikely man began writing uh, a book from a dimly lit, dingy prison cell that would go on to become one of the best uh, selling and most read books in the history of the English language. Um, man's name was John Bunyan. Can anybody guess the book? Pilgrim's Progress is the book. So he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, and many of us are familiar with the book. Maybe you've read it, maybe you've read a bridge version with your kids. And at the beginning of the book, we're presented with this picture, a man named Christian, and what does he have on his back? This big burden, that's a, it's almost like a canvas sack on his back, that's a visual representation of the sin that's weighing him down. That's how the book starts. And as the book gets going, Christian hears from a man named Evangelist, hey, there's a way to be freed from your burden. You can go and find mercy in the Lord. And so Christian starts this journey, and there's a great scene in the book where he comes to the foot of a cross, and at the foot of the cross, he understands the mercy of Jesus, and he trusts him. And as he comes to the Savior, the burden visibly falls off his back and rolls down the hill. And if you're a believer today, that's a really sweet scene for you, because you've experienced that. You know what it is to have your sins just pulled off of your back by the hands of Jesus. So you, you know what that's like, and, and you love to, to think about that scene. But I want to pose a question to you this morning, and the question is this. Does it ever feel to you, like in your daily walk as a believer, there's still a little bit of the burden on your back? Do you, you ever feel like, I'll ask the question a different way, do you ever feel like there's still this weight of sin that just drags you down? Maybe you're frustrated today because there's a sin that's been just uh, cropping up in your life over and over again, and you've been trying to get rid of it for a long time, but it's still there, and you're, you're discouraged, and you feel heavy. Maybe you have walked with the Lord for a long time, but you feel like, you haven't actually made the kind of progress in your life as a believer that you wish you had, and so you're discouraged in, in, your, in your faith. Whatever your situation today, there's, a, there's an experience that's common to every believer, and it's a tension between, on the one hand, knowing that our sins are totally forgiven in Christ. It's all done away with. We're pure before Him. And then on the other hand, walking daily in the frustration and the pain and even the misery sometimes of the sin that remains. If you're a believer, you know what that's like. You understand that pain. And a question then comes to mind, well, is there any way for normal Christians, struggling Christians like us, to really be happy in the midst of the pain of all that sin? And the Bible's answer is emphatically, yes, there's a way to be happy. And Psalm 32 is one of the places where we see gospel goodness laid out before us. David wants to tell us there is a way for you to be a happy sinner. I don't mean to be happy 
in your sin, but in the midst of, of continuing to sin and struggle, there is a way to be truly, deeply, richly happy. That's what this psalm is all about. And I think we can agree, if there was ever someone who's qualified to give us this message, that you can be happy after a crippling episode of sin, isn't it David? Probably so, right? Most, most people agree that this psalm comes in the aftermath of Bathsheba Gate, in which David basically set up the Ten Commandments like ten bowling pins and took his bowling ball and thought, how many can I knock down with one episode of sin? He, he absolutely shattered the Ten Commandments with one fell swoop. And he's the man who says to us, there's a way to be happy, truly, deeply, richly happy in the midst of of sin and in the aftermath of sin. So here's an outline for you this morning if you're a note taker. David wants us to have the big picture in our mind that happiness comes to us when we freely confess all of our sins and then freely enjoy all of the blessings of Christ's forgiveness. That's, That's the main heading, the banner that flies over everything else. And specifically, we want to see four blessings that he tells us are ours to enjoy in Christ. And we're going to hold these in our hands and look at them as we go through this psalm. The blessings are these. We want to enjoy God's forgiveness. First, God's forgiveness. Second, we want to enjoy God's protection. Third, we enjoy God's direction. And then fourth and finally, we enjoy God himself. That's how the psalm ends, and it gets really, really sweet towards the end. So that's where we're heading, and we're going to dive in in just a second. But before we do, I just want to make a quick note. Keep the word enjoy fixed in your mind as we go through this, because I want to just labor the point, and I think the psalm does this, that real happiness comes to us not when we just have doctrines fixed in our head as, as things to be studied and thought about, but when we experience the realities of what's ours in Christ as tangible things to be enjoyed. And we cherish them and adore them and savor them. So we're going to be going through this psalm and talking about how we can enjoy these different things. And we're going to watch the pattern of David that he sets for us. How can you be a happy sinner? That's what this psalm is all about. So let's get into this first. We first want to see that it begins when we begin to enjoy God's forgiveness. Look with me at verse 1. David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. These two verses, they kind of hang over the rest of the psalm. They give us David's title sentence, if you know what that is, or you're a kid and you write papers. He's, he's telling us that the, the one way to enter into blessedness begins by enjoying God's forgiveness. We can only come into blessedness when we enjoy God's complete, total forgiveness of our sins. Even from the start, we start to realize that this psalm is going to confront a lot of the ways that we think about trying to enter into happiness after our sin. If you're a sinner, and you are, it means that you respond to your own sin in sinful ways. And so let me, let me throw a few out. And we'll see if you try these on for size and maybe you go, yeah, I've been there. I've done that. Sometimes when we sin, our response is to try to minimize the sin. There's something in us that feels guilty, but we just kind of push that down. And instead of of letting that guilt rise up, we think, ah, it's not so bad. And maybe we wouldn't actually verbalize this, but maybe we actually try to respond by doing more good things 
and we think that somehow that's all going to balance out and make us feel better in the end. Or maybe your response is to ignore the sin. You sin, and you know that there's something going on in your soul that's not right, but like trying to hold a basketball underwater, you just push it down deeper and deeper and try not to think about it. Is that a recipe for happiness? No. It always comes back up, right? And the third thing, maybe you're the kind of person who just likes to wallow in your sin. You sin, you feel bad, and then you start to feel really bad, and you just go down a path where where you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the mire of sin. This psalm is telling us, no, that's not how happiness comes. It actually begins when we come to the Lord and receive his forgiveness for our sins. I want to I ask a few questions of these first two verses. We're going to really dive into these because they're so foundational for the psalm. Let me ask three questions that's going to help us kind of mind what's here. First, what does the word blessed mean? He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Well, we have to figure out what blessed means. So in the Hebrew Bible, there's two words for blessed. And one word is used in more religious context. So you could think of verses like, and that religious might not even be the right word, but a more formal setting. Genesis chapter 1, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Or you could think of a situation like God blessing Abraham or people blessing God. That's one way that the word blessed is used. But there's another way, and that's what's used here. It's far less common, but... This word actually has the idea of a deep God-given happiness. A deep God-given happiness. So you could really read these first two verses as happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And it's not a fleeting happiness, but it is a deep, joy-filled, peace-saturated happiness that comes from close and right relationship with God. So, We want to just get that firmly fixed in our mind. Happiness is not about the newest fitness routine, the newest diet. It's not about having the better house. It's not about having the right retirement plan. It's not even about having great family relationships or friendships or doing fun vacations. No, happiness boils down to how can I be in right relationship with God, and it comes through forgiveness. Second question to ask, really important. How on earth is this kind of forgiveness possible? David says in verse 2, Blessed is the man, walk with me here, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Well, if you're thinking about the character of God at all, alarm bells should be going off in your head. Uh, excuse me, David, how is this possible? How can God just not count iniquity against you? We know God's character. He's holy. He's just. He has to punish sin. So how can this happen? Think specifically for a second about David's sin, too. Just let's consider how much he blew up God's commandments with his sin uh, with Bathsheba. Step one, leery, ugly, nasty coveting from a rooftop of another man's wife. Is that a good place to start? Not so much. Step two, commit premeditated adultery with that woman. Step three, first degree murder of her husband to cover things up. And then step four, and probably worst of all, lie and paint yourself as the hero by welcoming Bathsheba into your, into your uh, home and, and taking her for yourself. David, if we, if we were to look deeper, we would see more blackness. It's so evil what he did with Bathsheba, and yet here he's able to say, God's not going to count that iniquity against me. And you see where we're going with this. This psalm, from the very beginning, is, is, is asking a problem that can only be answered by the cross of, of Jesus Christ. Isn't it? There's no other way. The only way that God cannot count iniquity against you is if he counts your iniquity against someone else. 
And that's the great hope of the gospel. So we want to just, as we're walking through the psalm, we want to realize that everything we're talking about, enjoying God's forgiveness, enjoying His protection, His direction, enjoying Him Himself, it all comes to us in Christ. None of this is divorced from Jesus. The, the, the writer, David, he doesn't actually explicitly name Christ, but the blood of Jesus is flowing through all of these lines because there is no forgiveness, no being right with God, no being able to say, God's not going to count my iniquity against me except through Christ. He's the only way. And so we're just going to see that come up again and again as we go through the psalm. And then here's a third question for you. Look at the second part of verse 2. David says that the blessed man is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. Question for you. Have you ever, ever, even once in your life, been able to arrive at a place where you have perfect understanding of what's going on in your own heart? Has that ever happened? It's never happened for me, and I don't think it has for you either. We can't get down that deep. We, we can't understand all of the motives and affections and desires that are driving everything we do. So maybe you read those words, there's no deceit in this man's spirit, and you start to shift a little bit in your chair, and you think, well, if that's required, if, there, if, if it's required that I have a perfectly uh, pure heart that has no deceit before God, I'm hosed. There's no way. I'm not going to get there. And we're not going to totally answer this now, but I just want to say that's not what that verse is talking about. That's not what this means, and, and we're going to put a pin in it and return in a second, but we actually are going to see that this idea of no deceit is a really key piece of the puzzle so far as our true happiness and enjoyment of forgiveness is concerned. So just put a pin in it there. We're going to return to this idea of no deceit. So that's the first two verses. Big idea, true blessing only begins when you start to experience God's full forgiveness of your sins. It's a, it's a blessing that means a God-given happiness. It has to do with Christ because it's only possible through Christ. And then finally, we have to somehow wrestle with this idea, no deceit. But now we get something really exciting from David. He gives us a very vivid picture of his own experience walking through the darkness of sin and then finding the light of forgiveness on the other side. Has anybody ever seen the show Extreme Makeover Home Edition? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you, if you're like me, you used to love that show. And you always wanted to be a part of the teams with the blue shirts that swung the hammers and went in and made the house new. Well, the show begins with a before picture of a house that's falling apart. It's, it's got, you know, any, any problem you can imagine with a house, the house usually had it. And then by the end, there's this after picture of a pristine, amazing new house that the team had built for a, you know, a family. David gives us a before and after picture that is just as crystal clear as, as that before and after picture. He shows us what it's like to have sin that's not dealt with in your life, and then he shows us what it's like to come to the Lord and freely confess that sin and receive joy and forgiveness. So we want to look at this before and after picture from David. We're still talking about enjoying God's forgiveness, but look with me at verse 3. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. If you have ever, for a period of time, held sin inside, you know exactly what David is talking about here. It is among the most miserable, painful, uh, soul-crushing experiences to have unconfessed sin festering in your heart. That's what David's talking about here. 
I want to point out just two observations. First, it is possible to be both justified and miserable. David, we, David's writing here of his experience as a believer. It's not like he wasn't a believer this time. He was someone who trusted in the Lord, and yet he had this season of sin in his life and then kept that sin inside, and it led to him being totally miserable. So we just need to get clear in our minds. My justification or my standing is righteous before God. That's secure in Christ. It's not being touched. If I'm a believer, that stays. But my day-to-day experience of life with the Lord can go up and down, and I can enjoy great peace with Him, or I can have misery in my soul based on whether or not I'm being forthright about the sin that's in my life. And look at how miserable David's experience is. Bones wasting away, groaning, literally roaring, roaring all day long. Maybe you've been so sick with sin before that you've let out an audible groan. Just, oh, it's eating me away inside. His strength was dried up. There's nothing that dries up your strength like trying to hide sin. Constantly worrying if somebody's going to find out. Constantly knowing that God sees what's been done dries up David's strength, and it dries up ours too. Let me give you something encouraging, though. Let's say you're sitting there this morning, and you're going, yeah, that's me. I'm experiencing this right now. There's something, I know, I know there's something in my life, and I'm feeling that weight. Look at the first part of verse 4. The second thing that we want to observe from these verses is that it's God who brings us this pain as a mercy. David says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Whose hand? Your hand. This is not something that comes in a vacuum, but it's God who actually brings this painful and hard experience of of harboring sin to us because he knows what's best for us and he wants us to get it out. I was trying to think of a good analogy for this, and I don't think this is perfect, but if you have a baby, you burp the baby. Yes? If a toddler walked into the room and saw you burping the baby and didn't know, it would be very much within that toddler's you know, right to ask, Mom or Dad, why are you whacking my sibling's back? That feels really strange to me. But how would you respond? Well, I'm doing this because there's something inside of them right now, a little gas bubble, that has to come out. And so it's a kindness to burp the baby. I don't mean this to be trite, but this heavy hand from God It is God's divine burping. He's trying to get something out of you that should not stay inside. And it's His mercy to us that He won't lift His hand until we finally come to Him with our sin. Does that make sense? It's a kindness of God that He lays His heavy hand on us in this way because He wants us to bring our sin to Him. That's the before picture. Really ugly, heavy hand of God, lots of pain and uh, over sin. And if you are a believer and you've held sin inside, and all of us have in some way or another, we've experienced this. But what is the remedy? The remedy is open and complete and full confession. We're going to look at the after picture now. Look with me at verse 5. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And, exclamation point of the whole psalm, you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. This is such an amazing picture. Everything changes. Everything changes. And the linchpin or the key or the turn that makes David move from agony to joy is open confession of sin. I want to just look at a few things in these verses. First, 
notice that true, comp- true confession is always complete confession. David could have stopped at just, I acknowledge my sin to you. But he goes on to say, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said actively, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He uses the three words that you can use in his language to talk about sin. Sin, iniquity, transgression. What's the point of this? David's saying, when I came to God, there was nothing held back. Nothing whatsoever. I brought it all out. Everything dirty in me that I could think of, I just I ripped it out into the light in front of God. And we, I said that we returned to the idea of no deceit. I think that this is what David means when he says there's no deceit in your soul. Confession is the way that we move to a place of having no deceit within. As long as we're holding something inside that we know is dishonoring to God, we will never experience the clean conscience that comes from the full confession of sin. God wants us to get it all out. You can almost think about it like this. Imagine your sin as a big barrel that every day you're filling up with more sins. You're just, you, you have an angry moment, more sin in the barrel. You have a lustful glance, more sin in the barrel. You're impatient with your kids, more sin in the barrel. How is it that God brings forgiveness and, and joy to someone who has a barrel full of sin? It's not when we just take a pinch of sin off the top of it and say, here God, I guess I did something bad. No, it's scraping the barrel. It's getting down to the very bottom and just saying, Lord, everything is bare before you. You know it all already. You know it all, and Lord, I want the mercy that only you can bring. We don't even know the depth of our own sin. David said in Psalm 19, Lord, forgive me for, for unknown or, or hidden faults that I can't even see. And so when we confess, we come to God in that way. Lord, there's things going on inside of me that only you know about. I don't even have awareness of them, but they're still dishonoring to you, and Lord, it's all there before you. Please show me mercy. And so then we see in the the last part of this this section that true forgiveness, when it comes from the Lord, it's a complete forgiveness. He says, I confess my sin, and finally he just says, and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. It's that simple. God, in a moment, because of the cross of Christ, pardons sinners. Maybe you're feeling this morning one of two ways. One, oh yeah, uh, of course, I I get it. Yeah, I, I know this stuff. Two, no, surely not. God could never extend that kind of mercy to someone as sinful as me. If you're in the first camp, I wonder if maybe you don't have a sense enough of the greatness of God and the the evil of sin. If it's something that's trite and light and easy to you, you might not realize how great a price has been paid for your sins in Christ. And God would probably encourage you Think about how great I am and how greatly you've sinned against me and consider the depth of my mercy. But the second camp, if you're saying, I don't know, I've sinned so much, how could God show me this mercy? I want you to think about the words of 1 John 2, verse 1. John writes, my little children, I'm writing all these things to you so that you do not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous. Is that not an encouraging thought? When we are burdened with sin, that's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Every time I'm burdened with sin, I think about that verse, and I think about my advocate before the Father. And I think about Jesus saying to the Father, Father, remember, there's a hole in my hand right here. There's one in my side too and my feet. His sins have been paid for on the cross. That brings me a lot of encouragement when I feel the weight of sin, to know that there's someone who's righteous, actually righteous before God, who's laying his hand on God and upon me and saying, this man has been brought to peace with you because of my blood shed on the cross. Praise God for that. Amen? 
That's our only hope. So this first thing that God wants us to enjoy is the blessing of his forgiveness. And now we want to see that out of that springs more blessings. And David wants us to enjoy them too. He's going to talk to us about the blessing now of God's protection and direction and then even enjoying God himself. And all of these, as, we, as we're going to come to them, they have an imperative thrust. They're actually they're, they're containing commands. So if David was here with us today, he'd be saying, I've experienced an amazing uh, display of God's grace. You must experience the same. I want you to. I want you to. And he starts by talking about God's protection. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Verse 6 is the scariest verse in the the psalm because it's a command directed at us if our hearts are not right with God. And David put some teeth in it to urge us if we are in a spot where there's sin in our life that we know is keeping us from God, he puts it in to urge us now is the time to come to him. He says, therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you. That all sounds pretty well enough. But then he says, at a time when you may be found. Why would he include that? It's because there's a time when God may not be found, when it'll be too late. And then he says, and he uses a metaphor that would have made sense to everybody he was writing to, surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Commentators go a different way on that verse and what it means, but I think what David's getting at, he's using the image that would have been familiar to all of them of the local river flooding over and sweeping across the banks and destroying everything in its path. Image that might be more familiar to us in terms of an immediate and sudden disaster as a car crash, a house fire, even a flash flood. If you've been in Utah recently, maybe you saw flash flash flood warnings that in a moment water might come through and sweep away everything in its path. David is saying, There is a day when God's wrath will come like a flood, and you do not want to be in a spot where you still haven't made peace with him in that day. I want to give you a few verses that explode this idea a little bit. Acts 17.31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 2 Corinthians 6.2, behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. If you're not a believer this morning, I don't know why you're here. Maybe you came with a friend. Christians can be sneaky about getting people to church. Maybe you're just here because you stumbled through the doors. If you're not a believer, Jesus Christ, through his word, is telling you, you can be totally right with God today. Today is the day of salvation. Come to me, and there's total mercy. Nothing will be held against you if you come to me and trust me. But the floodwaters are coming. So please don't delay. Some of you, maybe if you're not a believer, maybe you've been sitting in services week after week for some time now, and you're still not coming to Christ. And I just want to ask you, why are you waiting? What are you you waiting for? And why would you presume that God will give you another day to come to Him? The floodwaters of God's wrath are coming on the world, and today is a day for you when you can receive mercy in Christ. So David starts with that serious note. But if you need more motivation, or if you're a believer, if you want to to see what blessing is yours in Christ, David then goes on to talk about the way in which God protects him. Verse 7, 
He says, and this could be yours if you're not a believer. All you have to do is come to Christ. He says in verse 7, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Have you ever thought about how happy it makes God to protect you and care for you? I, if you have kids, you understand this. I don't have kids, but my wife and I were just on vacation with our extended family, and it was a great week, tons of fun, pool time, uh, air-conditioned house, palm it was, it was amazing. But we were with our, nieces and, or our niece and nephews for the week, and as we were driving home, we were talking in the car and saying, isn't it amazing how little a one-year-old can do for themselves? There is literally nothing. They need help with everything. I'm not even a parent, and even in like a snapshot for a week, I understood that. But what we said after that was not, and isn't that so annoying that they need help with anything? No, we said their helplessness is the very thing that most endears us to them. We love them, and they can't do anything. And if you're a parent, you know that. Is it a, is it a nuisance to you or an annoyance or something that actually makes you think less of your child when they're helpless and weak? No, it's the opposite. It's what fills your heart with love for them. I love my, my son or my daughter who can not tie their shoes or even get themselves dressed. Everything they do, they need help with, but it makes me love them all the more. If we can experience that as wicked, sinful people, how much more God? Don't you think he receives even more joy caring for us as a loving father? That's what this verse is saying. David says, Lord, you're a hiding place for me. Maybe you, as a kid, had a place that you liked to run and hide, a fort in your backyard or something like that. That's how David pictures God. God, you're the place that I run. You're the place I go. You preserve me from trouble. And then I love this last one. God, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. There's another place where it says that God sings over his people. If you have a view of God's protection or care for you as distant and cold and even grudging at times, yes, I'll protect you because, of, because my son died for you, but you're pretty sinful and I'm going to keep you at arm's length. This psalm is saying it's exactly the opposite. God loves to care for us. This is a fatherly protection. And we tend to spiritualize these kinds of blessings. You know, we don't really think of them in very concrete terms usually, God's protection. I'm not as often thinking about that in a physical way. More often I'm thinking about it spiritually. But for David, this was absolutely both spiritual and physical. This descended into the realm of daily, normal life. And it's the same for us. God protects us spiritually. We've just been in Jude. He keeps us. But he extends that fatherly care to every aspect of our lives. One of my favorite books is a missionary biography written by a man named John Patton. And this man went, uh, kind of in the early days in the missionary movement, he went to islands in the South Pacific that were hostile towards missionaries and had previously murdered and cannibalized people who had been sent there. He said, I'm going there. And he went, and his autobiography is filled with amazing stories of what the Lord did through him. Many people on these islands came to Christ. But there's one scene that will be blazed into my mind forever. The people on the island are at war with each other. There's musket shots and arrows flying. It's absolute chaos. I think it was a rainy night, and there's, there's the smoke of the guns in the air. He climbs into a tree to avoid the conflict And this is what he writes. I'm going to read a bit here. Stay with me. He says, 
I climbed into a tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut trees and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy His consoling fellowship. And then he asks the question, if thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? If you know Jesus, you have a friend who will not fail you then. And I just love that picture. I love that picture of how, how tangibly he experienced the comfort of Christ in a painful moment. And that comfort is ours as well. The Lord loves to protect us. There's a third blessing that he wants us to enjoy. It's the blessing of his direction. Look at verses 8 and 9. This gets really interesting. He says, I will... And now, God, if, if you can go with me here, he's picking up the pen in his own hand. This section actually comes as written from God to us. And we read, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Really, really encouraging. In this section, God speaks directly to us, and He tells us, if you want to have a happy life, if you want to be happy even in the midst of your sin, if you want to be a happy sinner, be the kind of person who gratefully receives my instruction. He starts by saying, I'll instruct you and teach you, I'll counsel you with my eye upon you, which even speaks to his care. Isn't that encouraging to think that God has his eye upon you? He's watching the daily, the daily events of your life, and he's, he's guiding you through all that with his tender gaze. But I, I think that we can even get this more clearly in our minds when we think of an analogy. Pretend you are in, a, in the army, and you're facing combat, or seeing combat, and there's a medic, an army medic, who says to you, I've got your back. No matter what happens to you out there, you can always come back here and I'm going to bandage you up. You can trust me 100%. That would be pretty encouraging. But let's say that there's a minefield in front of us and somehow this army medic has the, the plans to the minefield. He knows where everything is. And he says, go out there and if you, come, if you, if you hit a mine, you come back, I'm, I'm taking care of you. That's not... That's not that encouraging because we're still going to go and get hit and we're going to have to come back to him. But God is more gracious than that. He, if, if he's that medic, he says to us, here's the map. I, if you get hit, I'm taking care of you. If you stumble and fall in sin, I'm taking care of you. But you don't have to go in sin. You can listen to my guidance and avoid the pain and misery that sin brings. Here's the map of the minefield. You don't have to go and get blown up again and again and again with the same sins. I'll guide you with my eye upon you. That's what God is saying here. And it's so encouraging to us to realize if I'm struggling with a sin right now, the Lord is sufficient and powerful and able to deliver me from both the pain of that sin through forgiveness and even 
at least in a relative way, its presence in our life as, he's con- as he continues to sanctify and grow and guide. But there's another thing that's really helpful to note here because David uses an analogy. And again, this is the Lord speaking to us, but he says this, "'Be not like a horse or a mule without, understa- without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you.'" Think about this for a second. Anybody here a horse, a rider of horses? I am certainly not. Looks like we have none. Well, great. Good thing this one's going to land with us. No, I'm kidding. Um, we all know this still. We understand that if you're riding a horse, you put the bit in its mouth, and this is the key thing that I think we want to grasp. Does the horse end up going where it's supposed to go? Let me back up. Generally speaking, with a good horse, does the horse end up going where it's supposed to go? Yes, and it's the same with the mule, right? The key that David wants us to understand is not that God just wants us to follow his direction and end up where we're supposed to be. It's that we're not supposed to be like a mule who thinks of God's direction as a bit that yanks our head where we don't want to go. We are supposed to think of his direction as the hand, the loving hand of a father that gently guides us in the way that we do want to go. Does that make sense? Both the mule and the child being led by their father, they both, in some sense, are going where they're supposed to go. But for the mule, the guidance is constantly painful. It's always a bit in the mouth that is pulling them in a direction they don't want to go as they kick against the guidance of the master. God is telling us, if that's how you think about following my commands, your life's always going to be filled with misery. If you think of my commands as a burden that lays heavy on you, that's always keeping you from the things that you want to do and making you follow me, well, no wonder you're miserable. No one wants to live like that. But thankfully, we don't have to because the gospel's changed everything. When you came to Christ, if you're a believer, God opened up your heart and performed radical open heart surgery. Really more than that. It was heart replacement surgery. And he gave you a new heart with new affections and desires And you now have a heart beating in you that beats for the things of God. You love to follow his paths. You love to pursue righteousness. You want to know Christ more. And we need to conceive of God's guidance given to us in the word, not as a bit that's pulling us in a direction we don't want to go, but as the gentle hand of a father guiding us towards where we do want to go, which is into knowing Christ more and more and more. If you have been in a kitchen and maybe a glass has dropped and shattered across the kitchen. What do you usually do with the child in the room? You certainly don't tell them, oh, like, find your own way to the door. No, you don't trust them to do that. You either take them by the hand or, in times, pick them up and you carry them to safety. And that's how God's guidance works in our life. He wants the best for us. And the more deeply that you can believe that by the power of the Spirit, the more joy you'll have in following His commands. We want to enjoy and savor and cherish and relish God's direction. And then, in the last two verses, there's a final enjoyment held out to us, and it's the sweetest of all of them. It is that God wants us to enjoy God himself. That's where all this ends. Look with me at verse 10. David writes, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. What's going on here? Two things that I want us to see. First, our trust not our righteousness, is what secures our happiness. 
In verse 8, David says, I'm sorry, in verse 10, he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Wicked, keep that word in mind. You might expect in the next line that he would say, but steadfast love surrounds the righteous, right? The wicked have sorrow, but steadfast love surrounds the righteous. That's not what he says. The wicked have sorrow, but steadfast love surrounds who? The person who trusts in the Lord, which is such an encouragement to us because it means that our happiness is not fundamentally ever rooted in our own performance or righteousness. It's all in trusting a kind and gracious and merciful God. That's where it all begins. Steadfast love surrounds you if you trust in the Lord. And then a second thing that we want to see is that our, the ultimate target of our, delight, uh, of our delight in life is God himself. Verse 11, be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Have you ever wondered why God saved you? Why did he do it? Did he just do it so that you could go to heaven someday and enjoy the streets of gold? Did he just do it so that you wouldn't be as bad of a person on earth? No, that's not the answer. The reason that God saves sinners is so that they can come to enjoy him. That's the entire point of your salvation, that you were an enemy of God, but now you know him. And through Jesus, you've been brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And oceans of delight are ready for you and waiting in the Lord. I think that it's true in my life and probably in almost all of our lives that we taste and grasp so little of the joy that is secured for us in union with Christ. So little. It's like, it's like we have a huge generator ready and we're using it to power a nightlight. We're not getting what's ours because we don't taste and see and savor God himself. Real godliness is knowing and loving and delighting in the person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, revealed most clearly to us in the person of His Son. So if you want to be happy, even as a sinner, the most bullet, straightforward, direct path to that is knowing that you, as, confess, as, confess, as you confess your sins, you're forgiven, and then you make a beeline towards God Himself and say, I want to know and love and enjoy this God. So where does all of this leave us? Um, I want to close by just asking, if Jesus was the one standing up here, what is it that he'd be trying to say to us through this psalm? Well, I think he, I mean, if he was here, I think he'd just read the psalm to us. It's his word. But if we could expand that a little bit, what is it that he's saying? Well, if you're a believer, picture Jesus leading you today, leading you somewhere where he can talk just to you. And through this psalm, I think this would be his message to you. He would want you to remember that he's gentle and lowly in heart and that his wounds have secured your eternal freedom from sin. He wants you to remember that in your humble confession, you will never find him to be an enemy, always and only a friend. His forgiveness is immediate and complete. Nothing can separate you from his love. He delights in protecting you. He rejoices over you with songs of triumph. He directs you not with a bit, but with a gentle hand. And most of all, your union with him brings you into fellowship with God himself. And that is a very, very, very sweet thing. If you're a believer, there's rest for you in Jesus today, even in the midst of the pain of sin. If you're not a believer, you heard what the word said, that the floodwaters of God's wrath are coming. But if you confess sin and come to Christ for mercy, 
all of these blessings are readily available to you. So if you don't believe, I would just plead with you, come to Christ today. This is a psalm for ordinary people like us, and it's a psalm that lets us know we can be happy sinners. And I pray for my own soul and for yours today that as you think about these truths and enjoy God's forgiveness and his protection and direction in God, that it would be something that would bring deep joy to your soul. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and for its power. And we pray that you would make us a happy people. Lord, you are a happy God and you have redeemed us so that we could be a happy people in Christ. And we pray that if, if the weight of sin lies heavy this morning, that you would lift us from that burden through your forgiveness. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this day together. Amen. Thank you.